Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 68, The Lords of War. The first war between the Fengtian and Jili cliques hadn't gone quite the way Zhang Zhuolin had planned. He had hoped that Cao Kun would leave his maybe too capable subordinate Wu Peifu hanging out to dry, but that didn't happen. And as a result, the Fengtian had gotten rolled almost as bad as the Anhui clique. But the key difference was that Zhang was only down, not out. Since the debacle in the summer of 1922, Zhang had been carefully re-equipping his army with more modern gear. He brought in Western pilots to train an air corps, bought additional radio equipment for better communications, and even imported a few dozen surplus French tanks. Roads and railroads were built all across Manchuria, and the economic development I talked about in episodes previous reached the point where native Manchurian industry was able to start providing basic equipment like rifles and mortars for the Fengtian army over foreign imports that they had previously relied upon. Zheng was rightfully furious at his performance in the first Zhili Fengtian War and was taking no chances with the next one. He wasn't the only one taking the idea of armaments seriously, though. All over China, the stakes of the civil wars were becoming clear, and the sizes of the armies started ballooning. Most of China answered to warlords who were now at each other's throats, and everybody needed armaments. And that's where I'm going to take a little break from the proceedings and talk about the arms trade in China. The efforts to gather weapons of all kinds escalated in 1920 as it became clear the war in the South would grind on and there would be a breakdown between factions in the North, and only increased from there. China, possessing few industries at the time, didn't have nearly the capacity by itself to arm all the troops running around the country. But the timing of the increased demand was fortuitous, as it came right after the massive armies of the West were completing their demobilizations, and all of a sudden, there was all kinds of World War I surplus just sitting around. And there wasn't just demand for standard guns and shells, either. As I mentioned, Zhang and others were acquiring planes and tanks, and therefore also wanted technical specialists from Europe to come over and provide their expertise. Now, Western leaders weren't entirely blind to the danger in China of the independent warlords all falling over themselves acquiring weapons, which would destabilize the country and ergo potentially endanger their existing investments. So, in 1919, the West got together and put together the Arms Embargo Agreement that would prohibit weapon sales to the warlords. Unfortunately for China, actually enforcing the embargo wasn't a high priority, and every nation in the gun-running business would get involved. This included the big names in weapons manufacturing at the time, like Vickers in Britain, DuPont in the U.S., Schneider in France, Krupp in Germany. On that last one, they got around Entente oversight by moving some operations to Sweden. And even smaller nations like Italy, Czechoslovakia, and even Norway got in on the action. They all got around the legal restrictions by either dressing up their products as filling some other purpose, uh, routing them through a web of foreign ports to mask their destinations, or selling them to middlemen who would handle getting the stuff into China. And since there were well over a thousand distinct warlords of varying sizes and resources, there were a lot of potential customers to attend to. Some areas of the weapons trade were dominated where a particular nation held a national interest. France, for example, had traditionally eyed Yunnan province as its preserve, and due to that region's geographic isolation, the French were the most convenient suppliers uh, due to the river routes running from there to North Vietnam. 
Japan focused on Manchuria, and as you recall, got into some domestic trouble transferring those Vladivostok supplies to Zhang. The Germans would re-establish themselves in Shandong, their old concession, which wasn't objected to by the Japanese at the time, as under Hara Takashi and his successors, cooperation with the West was a priority. In the sphere of more specialized items like airplanes, the British and French producers would accommodate anyone that could afford to buy, which usually meant the bigger groups in the North. Things like planes were great for them because the buyers would also hire the aforementioned specialists to maintain them and instruct the Chinese in their use. Motorized vehicles also meant a need for spare parts and more business down the road. The case of Germany's participation also shows the tactics used to get around international law. They were barred via Versailles from engaging in the arms trade, but were also obligated to provide free trade zones for the benefit of Czechoslovakia in the ports of Hamburg and Stettin. Using that as cover, weapons would be sent to those places and then loaded aboard Norwegian ships bound for China. So the intent of the Entente backfired as a provision to economically help out the Czechs let the Germans backdoor their way into the weapons business all over the world, which was a clever workaround and obviously less necessary for victorious nations. Italy, for example, just ignored the embargoed treaty entirely and shipped directly, with their embassy and consulates actively aiding the sales and even acting as show floors. The British damaged the credibility of the very embargo they had pushed for in late 1919, as only five months after it had been enacted, they approved Vickers selling planes to Duan's government. The excuse was that the biplanes weren't armed for war, but nobody went for that obvious lie. They would be shipped without weapons, all right, whereupon Duan would easily slap some machine guns and bomb racks onto them. And the appearance of foreign weapons most definitely changed the behavior of the warlords. The influx of machine guns, modern artillery, and vehicles shifted the way that wars were fought in China. It rapidly became similar to World War I-style massed battles, where whoever brought superior firepower and had the troops motivated enough to withstand such an onslaught would win. This isn't to say that battles became perfectly like the ones that had been seen in the West, uh, just more reminiscent of them. Because the warlords were working with limited resources and the importing companies had a lot of clients to attend to, different models of weaponry were scattered all across the nation. Even the most well-equipped warlord armies would have gear from all across the world, and even then, there were shortages. Rifles and pistols were one thing, but machine guns and artillery were trickier to acquire, and therefore much rarer and had to be used sparingly at critical points in a battle. The intense competition over buying weapons also meant that they were operating in a seller's market. More than once, a shipment of rifles and ammunition would arrive, and it would be discovered that the ammo didn't fit the gun. Such incidents had to be brushed aside with good grace, as no commander was willing to cut off a source of future weapons. This was true even for someone as powerful as Zhang, as in one notable case in January 1923, he placed a half-million-dollar advance for weapons with an Italian firm. When he discovered that the Italian outfit wasn't going to make the delivery, he tried to make a legal appeal in Shanghai. But the Western-controlled court denied his plea. And even after that, he didn't forsake his Italian connections as he needed every armament he could. And if he didn't buy, then his competition would. Even a change in management didn't end contracts and obligations. Duan had bought those two dozen biplanes from Vickers on credit, which meant that when the Gili clique took over the government, they also took responsibility for the debt 
with no complaints. Which wasn't too much of a shock as they had seized the planes from the Ennui and were interested in buying hundreds more aircraft. This in turn sparked something of an air arms race, and Zhang turned to the French to provide 150 aircraft in addition to the tanks he was already purchasing. And amid the flurry of foreign purchases, there would also be efforts to grow domestic arsenals. These efforts to build up domestic weapons manufactories would not surprisingly be spearheaded by Zhang and the Fengtian. Out of all the warlord factions, it was his that held the most secure home base, both from outside attack and internal squabble. Plus, it would be in keeping with his focus on developing Manchuria's industries. Overall, though, the factions in China had a long way to go to be even partially self-sufficient. In 1916, for example, there were only eight factories with the tools on hand to actually make weapons. There were scores of specialized shops capable of repairing small arms and recycling ammunition, but that was the extent of their capabilities. And even those capable of producing weapons couldn't do so in the quantities needed. The West was shipping in rifles in the tens of thousands at a time, with millions of rounds of ammunition, numbers most Chinese arsenals couldn't match. And even Zhang's efforts at establishing his arsenal in the, at the city of Mukden, modern Shenyang, were slow going. He began expanding his facilities in 1921, and only in 1924 was it producing ammunition in quantities approaching self-sufficiency, although by that point he was also producing heavy weapons, like artillery, that had exclusively come from the West. It was only years after that, in 1928, the same year as his death, that the facility was turning out every type of weapon his army could possibly need. But by then, just a little spoiler, not only was he going to be dead, but his window for national dominance had passed. The other major domestic facilities would be in Taiwan and Henyang, and while they too would expand to produce a healthy variety of weapons, it was never enough to meet demand, as armies expanded from tens to hundreds of thousands and eventually into the millions. And the Taiwan arsenal was managed by the warlord Yan Jishan, who rarely ventured outside his home province of Shanxi, and the facility's output went purely into his armories. Fun fact about that arsenal, he would eventually equip it to produce Thompson submachine guns, which made him the only warlord with a domestic supply of Tommy guns. And while these three arsenals were the big ones, the demand meant that warlords would start going to great lengths to establish even a modest factory. Everybody dreamed of having some kind of facility that could churn out weapons for them, but getting a hold of the proper machinery was dicey. Oftentimes, the smaller buyers would pick up some machine tools here or there, uh, some equipment was sold by the white Russians when it became clear that their own civil war was lost, and sometimes they got lucky and secured a large shipment of machinery from the West to set up a proper factory. But even then, that was only the first step. Then you had to build the proper facility, which in some provinces meant installing infrastructure that didn't previously exist. And since the factories to build, say, electrical equipment didn't exist in China, that meant your prospective warlord would have to do still more importing. And for warlords further in the interior, like in the Sichuan and Gansu provinces, importing wasn't really an option. One fun example of making do with less, a local-level warlord had his factory installed with a water wheel in order to provide power. All across China, small factories were opened, producing a few dozen rifles a month to supplement Western imports here and there, and expanded where possible. Small change stuff, but it also highlighted how local commanders were ready to try anything to get their hands on more guns, and also how their efforts went to military concerns and not the well-being of the people they ruled. 
I've talked a lot about the priority of acquiring more weapons, but something I haven't mentioned is that the West expected to be well paid for their wares, and establishing domestic operations wasn't cheap either. Even in Manchuria, which was doing relatively well economically, three-quarters of all Zhang's spending was going towards his army by 1922. In the next year, he would spend twice as much, with the increase going towards expanding his Mukden arsenal. The splurging was even worse elsewhere, in some provinces reaching 85% of all expenditures. Warlords would raise taxes, extort from communities or businessmen, they'd sell off commercial rights, anything that could possibly raise money. And even those efforts, which really stripped the country bare, mind you, weren't enough. Foreign creditors had hundreds of millions on the books, and the warlords struggled to service their debts, uh, much less repay them. For their part, the pressures hit the warlords from all directions. They simultaneously had to keep their subordinates happy, while also expanding their forces in both quality and quantity, so as not to fall behind their rivals. It was an impossible situation, and impoverished the country still more than it already was. It was often the massive lower classes that felt the burdens of the civil wars most acutely, and as a result, the rule of the warlords, never terribly popular, was undermined further in the nation. The payoff to those sentiments won't come for a bit just yet, but the people were increasingly ready for an end to the confusion and mismanagement afflicting them. And it was a state of anarchy that Western interests had a direct hand in fermenting. So yeah, great going, enabling over a thousand warlords to brawl with each other pointlessly in the name of fun and profit. It all added to the anti-imperialist sentiment that already gripped the country, which would be a key basis of support for both the nationalists and communists. But in the short term, the military buildup really worked out for Zhang. Most everybody else found themselves hard up for money as they felt the strain of expanding their militaries. Back over in Beijing, Cao quickly found that the recently acquired presidency might have been more of a burden than it was worth. The financial problems that had sunk Li Yuanhong's second stint as president didn't magically go away now that he was in office, and the members of his clique were clamoring for more rewards. Wu himself saw the writing on the wall for the government's legitimacy and called for Cao to cast aside the National Assembly and just start ruling directly, much like Yuan Shikai had done. This course of action was deemed necessary because of both the national fiscal crisis that was escalating and also because many in the Zhili figured they'd have an easier time getting plush appointments if the boss were calling the shots directly. There was a split in the faction, though, as Cao Kun's brother, Cao Ying, stressed that his older brother shore up the legitimacy of the government and keep the National Assembly as is. In the end, the Cao Ying viewpoint won the day, as he astutely pointed out that if they dissolve the Assembly, then the process of doling out new provincial and government appointments might turn into a free-for-all within the Zhili. But even without opening that particular Pandora's box, the middle management of the Zhili clique still wanted more money. Too bad there wasn't any money. The disagreement over the government's direction almost split the faction, and only the fact that Zhang was sitting right there over in Manchuria kept them from falling apart entirely. Another problem was that the circumstances surrounding Cao's elevation to the presidency made all of them wildly unpopular across the nation, and many of the smaller warlords started playing down their association with Cao and Wu. Cao didn't have a good way to rein in those subordinates without sparking a fatal inter-click war, and just watched as they became more independent of his leadership. And closer to home, 
the most militarized part of the faction started reporting to Wu alone, who was headquartered in Luoyang in the Henan province, where he was making preparations for the day when Zhang would inevitably come back. Zhao, for his part, was stuck in Beijing, increasingly isolated from his own faction. This left the fortunes of the Zhili hanging by a thread. That thread would snap as a result of a relatively minor crisis coming from the center of the country. I mentioned in the aftermath of the Anhui Zhili War that not all members of the Anhui clique had been swept away, and the faction still controlled the province of Zhejiang and the city of Shanghai. That city, being the center of China's commerce and industry, was too rich a prize to be left in the hands of the remaining Anhui. Moreover, the local leader there, Lu Yuanjing, had started acting out after Cao had seized the presidency in October 1923. Over the next few months, numerous members of the National Assembly fled Beijing, looking to get away from Cao, and they found the refuge in Shanghai. It wasn't the whole assembly, but the Beijing government now lacked a quorum, which undermined Cao's earlier decision to govern through legal channels. Lu's presence in both Shanghai and Zhejiang was a source of a great deal of consternation to the local Zhili commander in Jiangsu province, Qi Zheyuan. His province technically included Shanghai, and he was hungry for the city's wealth. His frustration, though, was that nobody wanted Shanghai to become a battle, as it would disrupt commerce all across the Yangtze River Valley, which meant a lot of Qi's colleagues weren't really interested in his ambitions. This had led Liu and Qi to agree to a truce in August 1923, promising not to attack each other or make alliances against each other. This didn't last, as on June 8, 1924, Liu provided safe haven to a pair of minor Anhui warlords fleeing north from Fujian into Zhejiang. Qi took exception to this and used it as a pretext to commence hostilities. Too bad for Qi, Zhang had been in touch with the remaining members of the Anhui and was prepared to fight on their behalf, especially since it was far more likely they would fall within his orbit than enjoy a resurgence of their own faction. On September 3, 1924, Qi began his attack on Shanghai, opening with a barrage of artillery. On the 15th, Zheng began moving the Fangtian army back south. A local warlord skirmish had turned into a general war between the national factions. And this time, Zheng's invasion would be far more impressive than two years prior. He marshaled an army of a quarter million men hovering north of Beijing. This was a steady escalation of forces deployed in these wars, as the Anhui Zhili War had been about 50,000 on each side and the first Zhili Fangtian War had been 100,000 each. The Zhili would not be outdone, and by this time had an even larger army on paper, but this was scattered all across north and central China, and would need time to get shipped northwards to meet the Fangtian. Plus, much of the Zhili's strength in central China would be focused on Zhejiang and Shanghai first. Zhang's invasion was focused along two primary lines of attack. The main thrust would be along the coastal road leading towards Tianjin. The critical point in this sector would be the Shenhuagen Gate, just to the northeast of the city of Qinghuangdao. This gate was where the Great Wall met the sea, and covered a thin coastal pass that provided the best route south through the mountains dividing northern China from Manchuria. A secondary advance would be made further north in the rough hills and mountains towards the city of Chengdi. There, if the Fangtian faced little opposition, they would outflank the Zhili and cut them off on the coast. And if the Zhili sent reinforcements to fight in the mountains, well, that meant they weren't fighting on the more critical coastal road. The Fangtian mobilization was noticed immediately, and by September 17th, Wu was in Beijing and assumed command of all the Zhili defenses. 
This time, Asao wouldn't be waiting to see which way the battle went before committing, and declared Zhang a rebel immediately. Wu made it clear to the assembled commanders that this would be a far more decisive war than the past, as once Zhang was beaten north of Beijing, they could expect to be invading Manchuria itself. His plans were similar to Zhang's, as he wanted to pin the Fang Tian's army on the coast, while Fang Yuzheng took his army northeast of Changde to outflank Zhang and encircle him. Recall Fang Yuzheng from last week. He's the warlord that most directly aided Cao taking the presidency, and was also notably cash-strapped. The stakes in this war were as high as they could be, and even the great powers were looking at each other with concern. They had gleefully sold China the very weapons they were about to turn on each other, and realized their own interests might be impacted. Troops and weapons of their own were deployed to the concession cities, which, especially in Shanghai, started taking on the appearance of an armed camp. In the south, the Zhili campaign against Liu in Shanghai would also have two fronts. To the north, Qi and the Jiangsu army would advance on the city of Shanghai itself, while the Zhili warlord Sun Chuanfeng would advance into Zhejiang province from the south. While Qi had a solid 60,000 troops by himself to invade Shanghai, the advance on the city faced geographic barriers. If you look at Shanghai in a map, you'll see that to its north flows the mighty Yangtze River, and directly to its west is Lake Tai, a significant obstacle. And the terrain around the city was well-watered, which is to say, muddy as hell. So, while it was mostly open ground, it could only be attacked from the north on a narrow front between the river and the lake, across muddy terrain. Facing him were 50,000 reliable Anhui troops who were prepared in fixed positions to meet the onslaught. To the south, the Zhili would muster 40,000 troops to invade Zhejiang and faced only 20,000 Anhui troops. But Zhejiang is almost all mountains, and it was expected the outnumbered troops could dig in and hold by virtue of simply the rough terrain. The first battles occurred just a little over 20 miles northwest of Shanghai. Qi's forces nearly broke through the Anhui lines on September 4th, on just the second day of fighting, but were checked as reinforcements arrived just in time to stop the advance. Three more attacks over the next week and a half also failed, and the two sides entered a stalemate by the 15th. The reason that Qi's forces failed can primarily be attributed to Lu's troops being well-equipped and very proficient with machine guns. While the open ground in the area meant Qi didn't have to storm any hill forts, it also meant his troops were critically exposed, and they were cut down in the thousands. Even further reinforcements from the rest of the Zhili couldn't break the stalemate, and the front settled into World War I-style trench warfare, as both sides intently followed the battle starting up in the north. But it was further to the south that Liu should have been more worried about. Soon Feng led the Zhili advance into Zhejiang, and produced far more decisive results than Qi. The Anhui troops in Zhejiang were of far lower quality than those found in the north, again an example of how uneven warlord armies could be. Within two weeks, Sun Chuanfeng had swept aside his opposition, and by September 16th, part of the Anhui forces went over to his side, seeing that they were the winning team after all. Two days later, on the 18th, Liu ordered the province be abandoned and everything concentrated on Shanghai. On the 22nd, Zhili troops entered into Hangzhou, the last major city before Shanghai sitting to its southwest. The combined Zhili force now moved to finish the city off. Qi reopened his attacks from the north, this time with a greater sense of urgency. Sun Chuanfeng might have been his ally, but he was also a rival. It was bad enough he had taken Zhejiang for himself. It would be intolerable if he also took Shanghai. Qi didn't let up the pressure, but by October 1st he still hadn't broken through the Anhui's lines. 
the devastating impact of their machine guns was simply too great to be overcome, and the defenders even launched counterattacks to try and get some breathing room. The appearance of Soon's troops, though, spelt the end of resistance in the area. He hurled 20,000 of his own troops against defenders numbering only a third of that south of Shanghai and pushed Lu's troops back. By October 9th, he had broken through with no chance of delaying his advance further. The defenders retired to Shanghai, and on the 13th, Lu announced his retirement from politics, which was the warlord way of saying he was surrendering. And he sailed for Nagasaki and Japan first, and then made his way to Manchuria and Zhang's court there. By that time on the northern front, it too looked like the battle was going to go the Zhili's way. Zhang's troops had moved quickly enough that Wu's own plan of going on the offensive was immediately frustrated, but the Feng Tian's attempts to break through the Shanhuagan Gate between September 19th to the end of the month were checked, and by the 26th, Wu had 120,000 men crammed into the small coastal area, with more to come. Zhang's air force proved a nuisance, bombing suspected headquarters sites and trains, but not systematically enough to cause lasting damage. The attacks on the trains could have been critical, had there been a deliberate strategy of attacking them, as one of the things holding Wu and the Zhili back were massive traffic jams as tens of thousands of troops were being shipped from all across China on a railway network that was still badly limited. Those railway delays also doomed the Zhili's northern flank before it was even able to get properly into the war. The idea was that Feng Yuzheng's army would pass through Changde and reach the city of Chaoyang further to northeast, well behind Zheng's main army and in place to cut him off and invade Manchuria. The massive traffic snarls all across northern China meant that Feng's troops were slow in arriving, and the Zhili garrison at Chaoyang was wholly ill-equipped to handle 26,000 well-armed Feng Tian troops. The local Zhili commander for that sector was still hanging out in Beijing when opposing soldiers attacked on September 14th. Feng had no way to reach the city in time, and on the 22nd, the Zhili abandoned it. The Feng Tian would attempt to follow this up with an attack to the northwest towards the city of Chaifeng. Uh, this was in the wrong direction on the way to Beijing, but the Feng Tian strategy was now to stretch the Zhili all across the north. This worked, as on October 7th, the Manchurians took the city, and while they were driven out a week later, it forced the Zhili to commit ever more troops ever more distantly from the capital. The Zhili strategy had been for Feng to attack northwards, but the reality was that the shipping situation prevented adequate supplies to get to the front in that sector, something that Feng was tremendously annoyed by, as he was fearful of being the fall guy for the northern flank's lack of success. Feng also realized that even though he was gradually building up superior forces in the area, that his planned attacks were going to be grinding affairs in bad terrain, while not being properly supplied by Beijing. That wasn't what he had signed up for, so he concluded a secret agreement with the opposing Feng Tian commander, and both agreed not to attack each other. This was really bad for the Zhili, as a lot of their best artillery had been routed north and would now be sitting around doing nothing, and it freed up the local Feng Tian army to divert much of their troops to the south. And that diversion of forces was going to prove decisive. Zhang's troops in the south had mostly given up on trying to force their way through the coastal pass, but there were other gates that guarded valleys that bisected the Great Wall. They just were a lot smaller and weren't as convenient for tens of thousands of troops to move through, but Zhang only had so many options. He began organizing groupings of a thousand men into dare-to-die units, a term we'll be hearing again in the future. There weren't any special qualifiers to be a member of one, only that they were composed of dependable troops 
who could take some really risky missions. And now they were deployed westward to try and storm some of the Great Wall's gates and get behind Wu's lines. It was one of these attacks on the Giamenko Gate, just to the northwest of the Shanhuagen position, that they finally broke through on October 8th. One colorful story I read had the Fangtian commander ripping off his shirt and leading the charge, sacrificing himself, detonating some mines to allow his troops to advance forward. 5,000 Fangtian troops died taking the gate, but they were in. The Zhili troops there had been placed under the command of Cao Ying, who, you'll remember, was Cao Kun's brother, and who had convinced him not to go with the whole military rule thing that Wu had advocated for. Uh, turns out he wasn't big on military anything and he fled from the field instead of counterattack. The Zhili managed to contain the breakthrough by October 10th. They would have to fight on much more open terrain in that sector. The presence of Wu on the front lines was critical to the Zhili ability to shore up their position, as among all the warlord generals I've been talking about, he was the one who was actually good at being a commander. This was recognized among the Fangtian as well, and many of their leaders kept an ear out for where Wu was at any given time. If he was traveling in an area close to theirs, they usually refrained from making any attacks, fearing defeat at his hands. But he couldn't be everywhere at once, and while he focused his efforts around containing the Geomenko breakthrough, on October 19th, Zhang took the Shanhuaigan Gate. Wu had to race back down there, and over five days of fighting, barely managed to contain that breakthrough. But all the fighting was wearing down his army. He had started with 120,000 troops under his personal command and had to send 30,000 to help guard the north. Coupled with casualties suffered, he was down to just 60,000 men facing Zhang's 74,000. That all being said, Wu's situation wasn't desperate just yet. Shanghai had been won, freeing more troops that could be expected to head north, and he hadn't even committed yet the troops that he had held in reserve. The narrowness of the front meant only so many could be sent forward at one time. It looked like the front was going to be a meat-grinding stalemate indefinitely, which was to Wu's advantage, as he had access to way more bodies to throw into the field, and Zhang was under pressure to wrap the campaign up. It was almost November, and he did not want to be stuck in those northern mountains during the winter with his smaller manpower reserve. It was at that exact moment, on October 23rd, that Feng Yu Zhang executed a colossal backstab. He had been squabbling with Cao Kun over getting paid since Cao had been stalled in the presidency and Fang had received little for his efforts. Now he was stuck in the northern mountains, facing a harsh winter, not getting the supplies needed to keep his army together, and still not getting paid. Zhang had also been in touch with him since 1923 and had sent a steady stream of cash gifts to get on Fang's good side. Fang, though, was ambitious enough as it was, and probably didn't need the bribes for him to decide to lead a contingent of troops into Beijing and take the city mid-campaign. Good for him, there wasn't any organized resistance, and he took the capital virtually without a fight. Cao Kun became his prisoner, and he started making noises that he was calling the shots now in North China. This was a critical blow to the Zhili, to say the least, as overnight everything became different. Next week, we'll pick up with the aftermath of Fang's very sudden betrayal and cover the fall of the Zhili clique and the rise of a new status quo in North China. Again. Join me then. And as always, thank you very much for listening.